This is the Doctor Who podcast, and you are most welcome. In this episode of the Doctor Who podcast, we'll be trudging through the snow, building snowmen and putting presents under the tree as we discuss a history of Doctor Who at Christmas. Ho, 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 ho. Yes, hello everybody and welcome to another episode of the Doctor Who podcast. In fact, it's the last Doctor Who podcast before Christmas descends upon us. So in that spirit, we thought we would go back and take a look at Doctor Who's association with Christmas in the past. Now, what we've tried to do is go back and make a list, as all good Doctor Who fans do, and make certain that we've got every single story covered that mentions Christmas at some point. So the challenge for you listeners is to figure out which ones we've missed. Uh, but we're going to enjoy the next hour or so, going through each of the Christmas specials and a couple of the classic stories as well. With me, as per usual, we have Mr. Trevor Gench. Hello, Trevor. Hello, James. I hope you've checked that list twice. I've checked it at least twice, and I'm Excellent. certain it's wrong. <laughs> but there you go. <laughs> and just to bring us back on track, we have Tom in the other corner. Hello, Tom. Hello, hello. It's lovely to be here. Indeed. And just as an extra special treat for all you listeners out there for Christmas, we thought we'd mix the dynamic up a little bit this time. We've got Leeson from Radio Rassilon in a camper van. Hello, Leeson. Hello, James. Great to be here. I didn't know the camper van was pink. I'm quite shocked. <laughs> Vinyl seats. It never seats. used to be until last week when Tom turned up with his pot of paint. Mm, it's well, a good look. you know how it is. There's not many people that can carry this look off. Well, no, and frankly, uh, the only reason why I haven't mentioned it is because I'm colourblind, so it doesn't really have any effect on me whatsoever. You really are missing out, James. It's fabulous. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll open my eyes in a minute. Anyway, <laughs> let's get started. Now, Trevor, let me ask you a quick question. In the spirit of the Doctor Who podcast quiz, what was the first mention of Christmas in classic Doctor Who? Oh, well, surely anyone who's a Doctor Who fan knows that that's worth their salt. It would be um, the, the Feast of Stephen from the Hartnell era. Indeed. And Tom, you've been listening, haven't you? Yes, indeed. I indeed have. The Feast of Stephen, which was broadcast on the 25th of December 1965 um, as episode 7 of the epic Daleks Master Plan. Now, there's an awful lot going on inside that story, um, certainly certainly on both sides of it, uh, between being authored by Terry Nation uh, and Dennis Spooner. I believe. Um, the tension was really beginning to get to the lead actor, cast and crew. Um, lots of changes, lots of hellos, lots of goodbyes, of course. Um, story famous for the first appearance of Nicholas Courtney as uh, space agent Brett Vian. Um, also, we have the introduction of Sarah Kingdom, as played by Jean Marsh, who some people regard as a companion, other people don't. But also, um, the first death of a companion as Katarina sacrifices herself to uh, save the Doctor and her new friends. So, an awful lot taking place inside this story. Um, now, a lot of these episodes don't actually exist in 
uh, film form anymore. So if you want to enjoy this story, and I would heartily recommend that you do, um, it's possible to, to track it down as an audio play. Um, now, I'll be honest, I didn't listen to all of the Daleks' master plan until very recently, maybe a couple of years ago, because I was put off it by by the sheer size and scale of it. But if you if you want to get a feel for the the strength and the and the uh, power of William Hartnell's performance as the first Doctor, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's a great story. It is epic. Uh, and as and as we say at the begin said at the beginning, right in the middle is the first Christmas episode. Well, it, it, well, it's interesting. I mean, so the first half of the story is essentially uh, a parody on uh, a TV show that was going out at the time called Z Cars. Now, everybody knows that the TARDIS is a police box, but at the time that this uh, story aired, police boxes were very common on the streets of the United Kingdom. So in the first few minutes, the police box materialises uh, outside a police station, much to the amusement of the, of, of the police who actually work in the station. Um, and... In fairness, it, this is meant to be a comedy episode. It sits neatly between the two halves of the story um, and is just meant to be a bit of a panto. And so we have lots of um, a lot of farce, we have lots of running around, we have lots of chase, uh, chases, um, and uh, f- uh, frankly, there's a lot of music hall stuff when we, get, when we actually have uh, uh, the Doctor leaving the TARDIS going back in, Stephen leaving the TARDIS going back in, Sarah King, and so on and so on and so on. Um, there are a couple of lines of... Um, Interesting quality uh, as the as the uh, as the TARDIS crew go running around a film set uh, in Hollywood as well. But it's what, what can we say? It's the it's the first of the Doctor Who pantomimes. Um, there are definitely better episodes. There are certainly worse episodes. Um, but for what it is, it's a great it, it's a great thing. It's very interesting to listen to it out of season in the middle of the Daleks' master plan. I must confess. Um, but if you want, even if you want to pop onto uh, uh, the, your favourite video streaming site, you might you might be able to pick up a reconstruction of it. I mean, Tom, do you think it works, the fact that this is such a comedic episode and it's an obviously uh, an, an attempt at some kind of seasonal panto right in the middle of a relatively serious run of stories? I mean, do you, do you think it works? I mean, I, I know it's very difficult trying to picture yourself or trying to imagine yourself as, as a viewer back in the mid-1960s watching this, but what do you think their experience would have been? What do you think their reaction would have been when they saw this episode? Well, I think context is the most important thing, though. You're right. Um, people consumed television in a wholly different way in those days because there, was, there were only a limited number of channels, uh, and, even though, and even those channels broadcast for a limited amount of time on the day, um, during the days. So if I transport myself back to it, I forgive it because it was, it was the tradition at that, at that time uh, for, any, for anything that was airing over Christmas or Christmas Day to have a Christmas episode. So um, for what it is, and for when it is, it works perfectly well. The only moment which I think everybody would would cite in this, which is a little bit uh, dubious, is when Hartnell, uh, William Hartnell, turns to the camera and says, "I wish everybody a very merry <laughs> Christmas." That's a bit of a weird thing. I quite like that. I have to say because it is so weird and it's so unique. I think within within Doctor Who, but but Leeson certainly as someone who um, in, enjoys a show or, or the new show, uh, you mm. couldn't really get much more different I don't think um, to, to what we've seen on our screens at Christmas the last three or four years uh, to, to to this particular episode I mean w- was it jarring for you did you wonder why on earth people um, would want to sit down and watch a story like this at Christmas no I mean like uh, Tom says it's, it's the context of the thing and I think um, at Christmas we are more inclined to watch sillier things you only got to look at the BBC ident for Christmas this year it's all woolly pullies and dancing and singing 
certainly in this country, we do tend to go a bit gaga at Christmas and we're, we're more inclined to, <laughs> to like a bit of sort of naff fun. That's why pantomimes are such a great tradition. I'm kind of wondering whether we're being a bit analytical on the Feast of Stephen. I mean, apart from really doing that fourth wall thing and doing the, you know, Merry Christmas, everyone, from Hartnell... Is that the only reason we're really looking at this and going, this is a Christmas episode, just because it happened to be broadcast on Christmas Day? Yes, pretty much, I think. And and also, it was a deliberate shift by the production team. The only reason they made a show like this, which was akin to a carry-on film, I think, was because it was Christmas and it was the, it was the time of year. And I think, as, as Leeson says, it works as a serious story very very well if you just ignore episode seven i mean if you go from six to eight it really doesn't affect your viewing experience in fact it could be argued it could enhance it looking at looking at the detail for this i mean the the story was hugely underwritten um i think douglas camfield had asked terry nation to provide this episode but it was massively underwritten there was there was very little in it um and so Everything that's there is there for, to pad, literally to pad it out. Um, I think towards the toward, I think when he was asked about it in later years, Camfield did say um, that that final scene was something that uh, William Hartnell just ad libbed, but it wasn't. It, it was it was absolutely supposed to be there. And I suppose if we take it in the in the spirit of the times, it makes perfect sense. Um, James, this might make more sense to you. There was um, a show called Z Cars that was airing at the same time, um, and all of the policemen and there was there was a hope initially that um, there would be a crossover episode so it would literally be um, characters from Zedcars showing up in Doctor Who which would have been very strange. <laughs> it would have been particularly as Ian Cullen and Bernard Holly starred in Zedcars of course you've got Axos and Ixtar then uh, so mm. that would have been um, a fantastic crossover almost as good as the the fable Blake 7 Doctor Who one uh, that never happens. Let's take uh, 30 or 40, or someone else who's done the maths can come up with the correct number of years, leap into the future and say, Leeson, you've been watching A Christmas Invasion, haven't you? I have, and I was very pleased that uh, that was the one that uh, it fell to me to watch because I'm going to nail my colours to the mast here, straight off, and say RTD's Christmas specials never really did it for me. I always thought they, were, they had their foot sort of in, in both camps and neither... Uh, and it was it wasn't a proper Doctor Who episode, and it wasn't Christmassy. Of all of the uh, RTD Christmas specials, this was certainly my favourite. It's important because it's the first Christmas special. Uh, it's also important because it introduces a new Doctor, so you know, quite brave. I like the fact that the Doctor takes a back seat for most of the episode. Reminds me very much of Castrovalva, a very brave thing to do, but builds the dramatic tension for when he finally does make his appearance. I quite like, having watched it last night, when I watched it on broadcast, I didn't like the whirling Christmas tree. I remember rolling my eyes at that moment. But when I watched it again last night, I quite, I quite enjoyed that. Yeah, uh, and it reminded me uh, of all of the things that I loved about RTD's writing. It reminded me of his, uh, his gift for, for writing snappy dialogue, realistic dialogue between people. Because since Moffat has taken over, RTD's taken a sort of a back seat in my mind as... Um, I look back on the RTD era and I sort of think, mm, a bit cartoonish, not, not, not a big fan. But having watched that uh, with a bit of distance between the last time I, I dipped into RTD's era 
um, it reminded me of all the good things. How long it. is it since you've seen it um, before, the last time? Was it all the way back in 2006? Or no, it would have been when I bought the uh, box sets uh, on release, so the second series box set. But uh, when, I watched the, when I watched it on broadcast, uh, I was introducing a friend who used to watch Doctor Who, hadn't seen any of the Eccleston era, uh, and I said, oh, we'll have to watch it on Christmas Day. It's fabulous. You'll, you'll love it. Um, I took my portable TV, TV around his house because his TV had broken. I was determined that we were going to sit and watch this. Uh, I got it all set up. And I was a bit, I, for the first 20 minutes or so, I was disappointed it wasn't Eccleston because I was really enjoying Eccleston. And I didn't really gel with Tennant in that episode at all. Uh, I was left at the end, after the sword fight, thinking oh, I was hankering after Eccleston. I was really, really wanting Eccleston back. But having watched it again last night, you can see that so many of the ideas that um, you know, and the, the themes for the Tenth Doctor were already in place. Certainly the Time Lord Victorious um, is already evidenced in how he takes it upon himself to uh, bring down the government with, with the five words. He sees that as, as his as his right, you know, to, that he can do that. I'm, I'm interested to find out what your... Um your your target uh, thought of this, uh, the, the guy who you were trying to convert into a Doctor Who fan, mm-hmm. um, you said you bought a TV round and everything. Well, I'm sad to say he was not impressed. <laughs> he, he thought all the th- <laughs> he thought it was a bit too camp. It's not Harry. No, it's is not. It? It's not Harry. He's not impressed with anything. <laughs> no, it, 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 it failed to uh, to convert him. Uh, he thought it was a bit too camp, a bit too um, a bit too Batman esque. Where it succeeds is. When you strip it down, it's a good feature-length or, or extended Doctor Who episode. And the Christmas decorations are, are exactly that. They're just, it's just decoration. It just happens to be Christmas. Mm. I think uh, in some of the later ones where RTD failed, it was, it was trying to push the Christmas to the fore a little bit and neither succeeding in being a good Doctor Who episode or a good Christmas episode. You're certainly right in as much as RTD wanted spectacles and he wanted Christmas right at the very front of the plot. And I think... There isn't an RTD special where it doesn't snow, whether or not it's, you know, artificial snow brought on by the Doctor or the, the TARDIS doing something, I think, in A Runaway Bride that made it snow. But yeah, on the whole, I think I would agree with you. I, I, I really enjoyed A Christmas Invasion. I, I think the fact that the Doctor wasn't in it for half of the episode was a gamble. It was a big gamble. Uh, I think it worked in a way that it didn't work with a TV movie. And it's certainly an episode that I can go back and revisit now and get in the Christmas mood and get ready for a new episode of Doctor Who. So as far as I'm concerned, it's probably the only Russell T. Davis Christmas special that works really well. Yeah, for me. repeated and bears repeated viewing. Well, what's the next on our uh, Christmas roster here at the DWP? Um, it would be The Runaway Bride, I believe. And James, you had the... Uh pleasure of watching that recently i did indeed it was the first time that i'd seen it in about three years as well my most recent viewing was the time that i enjoyed it the most without question Uh, i sat down a few days ago watched it all the way through no breaks nothing and i really enjoyed it there's even one laugh out loud moment for me where donna swings majestically uh, slightly reminiscent of um, of rose in the very first episode uh, back in 2005 but straight into a wall which was uh, very slapstick, but it was uh, it was also very funny. Um, really made me laugh. I completely forgotten about it. But yeah, I, I agree actually with a lot of what Leeson said about the Christmas invasion. I think that's just as relevant for the Runaway Bride. Christmas is very very um, prominent, despite the fact it was filmed in June or July, and is so obviously filmed in June or July. I mean the the scenes uh, in the streets. The the sun is out. It looks hot. Nobody's wearing you know big thick coats or anything and 
Catherine Tate's running around London uh, or wherever it's supposed to be in a wedding dress seeming perfectly warm you know no, no, no real trouble there um it made a slight mistake i think um uh, the, the scripting or the plotting of this where david tennant's doctor gave her his coat because it didn't seem to make any difference at all and just drew attention to the fact that something was slightly wrong with the weather but so uh, yeah anyway i'm british i'm allowed to complain about the weather in everything i discuss <laughs> so so there you go speaking as an australian the the weather or the, the time of year didn't worry me at all um <laughs> I, I i want to pose a question to you all i suppose um is the runaway bride the forgotten christmas special because when whenever i think of sitting down and you know i mean especially at this time of year when you want to watch something Christmassy and you want to watch something Doctor Who related. Sure, you've got The Christmas Carol, you've got Voyage of the Damned, but do people remember The Runaway Bride as being a Christmas special so much? More so being the first appearance of Donna, who then appeared, of course, as a regular companion the next year. I've absolutely never forgotten it. I mean, Catherine Tate's amazing anyway, Um, but surely this has the coolest sequence in all of New Who with the car chase motorway I knew it <laughs> oh do you know it's without doubt one of the best se- one of the best sequences absolutely fab- because look, the TARDIS was already a cool was, is already the coolest spacecraft ever aside from the Millennium Falcon but you know that's slightly different um and then to see it doing a car chase as well, and those and those kids, the timing of the kids um, who are exhausting her to jump, just absolutely fantastic. It, it, I, I didn't I like it, that part. That that brought I loved it into it. farce for me. That brought it into farce because it was silly. <laughs> Frankly, Perfect. it was silly. If you see someone getting out of a taxi down the M4 into a large blue box, your reaction is not to say, "Yeah, go on, jump." It was done purely for comedic effect, and, and I don't think it worked for me. <laughs> Okay, I think we're going to have to agree to differ, but no. I, I, well, as, as you all know, I'm, I'm a massive fan of Catherine Tate. Anyway, um, it's a great story. Um, it's it's um, it, it it does what it has to do. It does exactly what it has to do. It had to be exciting. It had to be funny. It had to be uh, a bit spooky, and it had to. Well, I don't know if it had to, but it introduced the character of Donna very well, um, and gave. And I just gave some gave David Tennant someone to actually act against. No disrespect to Billy Piper or Freeman uh, Adjaman, but Catherine Tate can really do can really do it. And it was great. And it was good to see two actors working well together. You know, the, the chemistry is obvious. It's brilliant. Do you know? I'm, I'm going to I'm going to disagree with you again, Tom. Sorry, I don't <laughs> make a habit of doing this. This podcast, but I I, I think this is, doesn't work as a particularly good introductory episode for Donna. I think Partners in Crime works a hundred times better than this does because she was supposed to be a one-off therefore she was much more acerbic and she wasn't typical companion material at all and I think it actually jarred at the end and because the doctor's almost hesitant about inviting her on board not necessarily because he's still you know melancholic after losing Rose etc but because he knows it's going to be a complete you know bolt out of the blue it'll be so different um, with, with Donna in a TARDIS and Donna is so resolute that it was quite clear that once it was announced she was coming back a series and a half later, that um, the RTD needed to do something special in order to make her of a companion quality, or good companion quality. And I think he did that in Partners of Crime. Uh, that's not to say that I don't disagree with you. I think Tate is an exceptional actress, and I think mm. putting her in a Christmas wedding setting and then putting her in a spaceship works really well and uh, I, I just loved her reactions so many times I'm going to do this on the podcast and I know it's audio but you'll get what I mean <laughs> it's when she goes 
you could just yeah. see that face you know it's a long <laughs> horsey face brilliant stuff i mean that in the nicest possible sense <laughs> i remember when i heard about her coming back to the show i i pulled that face I, I, I thought, oh dear, I, I wasn't very keen on uh, on Donna in the Christmas <laughs> special, the character. Um, but they they did. They changed her enough. They softened the character. She's certainly certainly a, a little harder to like in the Christmas special than she than she ended up being in the in the show when she when she came as a companion proper. Yeah, I mean, because she's such a totally different character to a certain extent between her appearance in the Christmas special and when we had her in the series. Because, no. I mean, I, I didn't like her in the Christmas special at all. But when she came into the series, she was such an incredible breath of fresh air. The things that this episode is memorable for is the first mention of Gallifrey uh, since the show came back. We see um, what Leeson talked about um, in the Christmas invasion. We saw the Doctor getting more controlling he just stands there watching the Rachnos die it takes Donna to put him out of that and to say hey look stop this you're going too far and everything is being set up for the end of the 10th Doctor's run and I think those are the things it's much more memorable for there are some brilliant pieces of dialogue here as well Russell T Davies is fantastic because he says so much with so few words and the scenes with Tennant and Tate standing by at the TARDIS door watching things <laughs> being created, watching the Earth being created, I think is some of the best we've seen throughout all of New Who. And uh, yeah, I, I just think it's I think it's a great episode, but not because it's supposed to be a Christmas episode. No, I really don't think it matters, frankly. It's almost as if RTD wasn't brave enough to go the whole hog on the Christmas thing. It was just... He wanted a bit of tinsel and a few baubles, but didn't want to go go the, the whole thing and just make it a proper Christmas special. Mm. He always wanted to sort of have his cake and eat it with um, with it being a Doctor Who episode with a bit of Christmas in there somewhere. Well, I think it's time to move on to our next Christmas special, guys. We've talked about Runaway Bride quite a lot. Um, Voyage of the Damned is our next um, Christmas special, and it really struck me as one of these stories that I don't know. I mean, just just filled with so much violence and death and you know carnage. It it seemed to be such a strange way to celebrate Christmas. Well, I think you're not wrong. It's it, the characters in it are very very strong. I think we agreed that it was um, effectively the Poseidon adventure in space, uh, which isn't a bad thing because that's one of my favourite movies. I love it. You know, um, but you're right. It, it is very dark. There does seem to be an absence of hope. Um, the character of the Doctor undergoes some rather interesting changes and developments. That whole speech about being a time lord and um, get and going to save the billions of people on the planet down below. Yeah, cringeworthy. Yes, it, well, I found it difficult. I mean, it, it's it's a, it's a nice. Uh, it, it, must have, it must have been an interesting speech to deliver, but I found it a little bit much. I I, I know who the Doctor is, and it's 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 the opposite of that speech is the opposite of what I believe the Doctor to be. Uh, yeah, I think in the Voyage of the Damned, it's this is the pride before the fall, isn't it? So he's he's still proud of the way he's acting at that point, but by the time you get to Waters of Mars, he's no longer proud of it. He's, he's just aware that you know, what he's turned into. And I think even as, uh, as Astrid uh, dies, even as, as, even as he fails to save her, he's begin- you can see that his, his grip on sanity and reality is beginning to slip just a little bit. But it, 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 for what it is, it's a good story. I mean, there are, there are more layers to it than immediately meet the eye, but once again, it ticks all the boxes. It's, it's big, it's brash, it's epic, it's, it's funny to look at, and there's a certain amount of pathos going on there, the characters are well drawn. Um, 
and and you've got your sort and and you've got the uh, the sort of waving in the air movement when uh, as the uh, spaceship Titanic fails to crash into uh, Buckingham Palace. I mean, how much more ridiculous could how much more ridiculous an image could you have? But from a Doctor Who fan's perspective, which is what I'm looking at it for, this is by far and away the worst Christmas special there has been. It's the longest to date. It goes on for ages. It's a very, very bad interpretation, as far as I'm concerned, of the Poseidon adventure. It takes all of the bad parts and just exaggerates them, brings them into the spotlight. I, I did, did quite like Kylie. I wasn't hugely let down by her. I, I thought originally stunt casting, and I know that was the basis of the conversation that you had with Trevor a few weeks ago. I did think it was stunt casting, but I thought it was stunt casting that worked quite well. Um, I'm, I will be eternally grateful to Russell T Davis and Voyager the Damned for casting Bernard Cribbins as as the new seller at the time because I think he went on to be the strongest thing about the 10th Doctor era later on Uh, but aside from that I agree with Trev fundamentally this is a dark depressing very atypical Doctor Who Christmas special and I really didn't like it so once again I've been extremely ambiguous. I want a, a good a good yarn and um, something magical. There's something magical about Christmas, and all the best Christmas movies have something magical about them. Um, Boys of the Damned was was depressing, I agree. And I questioned my faith while I was watching that, when it got to the James Bond tuxedo <laughs> moment. And I just thought, I don't know what they're doing with my Doctor. And by my Doctor, I don't mean, uh, I don't mean David Tennant. I mean the character of my Doctor, the, like Tom says. He's, I don't, rec- don't recognise him uh, and, and I couldn't shake that off for the rest of the episode uh, it was too much of a, of a disaster movie uh, too much of a Hollywood blockbuster disaster movie and it, what I want is a nice story a nice magical story told well uh, that looks frosted with snow and I, I don't want Beyond the Poseidon Adventure well, all this talk of death and destruction and obese people aside, it would be remiss of us not to delve into the big Finnish canon to look at what they've done with the concept of Christmas and Doctor Who and Death in Blackpool, which was released a couple of years ago now in the big Finnish range, of course features Christmas as part of its theme. And Ian and Michelle, our, our wonderful big Finnish audio reviewers, have uh, chimed in with their thoughts on this particular audio. Over to them. Hi, this is Ian and Michelle from the Doctor Who Podcast Forum. This week we're going to review a couple of Big Finish Christmas releases, both of which are from the 8th Doctor range and feature Lucy Miller as the companion. The first one of these is called Death in Blackpool, and it's written by Alan Barnes. This one's actually a sequel that follows on from two earlier 8th Doctor stories, the first one being The Horror of Glam Rock, which introduced Lucy's Auntie Pat, and the second one being The Zygon Who Fell to Earth, in which Auntie Pat dies and her Zygon lover, Hagoth, actually assumes her body for the rest of his life. Now, the trouble being that neither the Doctor nor Hagoth actually tell Lucy about that exchange. And that mistruth comes back to haunt them in this Christmas story. This was my first time with Paul McGann or Lucy Miller in Big Finish Audios, and I enjoyed both of them. Paul McGann, I thought, was a good, interesting portrayal, just as I'd heard from other Doctor Who fans. And Lucy, I thought, was a great character. In fact, I loved the whole setting in the Northwest. I used to live in Manchester in this area and found it extremely believable, not just the accents, but the mannerisms and the way that uh, people behaved. Lucy, in particular, was such a realistic portrayal of a sort of brassy northern lass and thought was extremely well written and observed. An interesting thing about this uh, Christmas special from Big Finish is it deals with fairly dark themes like 
death and betrayal of trust. There's a secret that the doctor and the Zygon had been keeping from Lucy, and this is the story where Lucy finds it out. And I like the way it explores that theme. Uh, I like it. I think it does it in a sensitive and a compelling way. And you do get to see this kind of brassy northern lass that you're talking about dealing with the fact that her best friend and the person she thought was her aunt have misled her all these years. Nicholas Briggs has actually called this the anti-Christmas special. It was very dark, particularly at the ending, which I thought was quite tough for a Christmas play. But what I actually thought was wonderful was Lucy does this monologue about a traditional British Christmas. And it's not sort of all Santas and snowflakes. It's all about the family and the stresses and the strains of the family getting together and sitting down and watching TV. They actually deliberately made that to be a parody of the dreary East Ender style Christmas. But I actually loved it. I thought it was wonderful. It made me smile. It made me think of real, genuine Christmases that, I, that I've had. And I thought it was a beautifully observed moment. It's like this. I want Christmas at home with my family. <laughs> I want nephews and nieces crying because they've opened everything by half past nine and they still want more. Right. I want my mum running a still frozen turkey under the hot tap at ten. I want my great gran half cut on cooking sherry by eleven. Gotcha. I want my dad and my uncle going hammer and tongs over who was the best James Bond all through dinner. One of my favourite moments is uh, a point at which the action just stops while the doctor helps one of the characters die. It's just a very quiet, compassionate moment that really shows the doctor as the way I like to think of my doctor. And I think this story does that very well. There's a sense of melancholy and poignancy that runs through it. I did also love how Lucy was completely oblivious to the emotional games that the porter tried to play with her. As he started going through this and trying to trick her into what he wanted her to do, very often the companion would have been going along with it while the audience goes, don't be so stupid. But Lucy was completely straight down the line exactly how you'd expect a real person to behave, which is strangely unusual for these sorts of things, so I really like that as well. Lucy has a real innocence to her. On the one hand, she's kind of gritty and earthy, but on the other hand, she has this innocent wonder. But uh, it makes me wonder a little bit about the ending. It's something I have a bit of a challenge with in this one because... Lucy, in dealing with the betrayal by the doctor, chooses not to go with him. I have a hard time believing that when the doctor is apologizing, how could you refuse to continue to travel with the Paul McGann doctor, with the TARDIS sitting there representing all of time and space? But I have to come to the conclusion that this innocence that she has, maybe the violation of that for her is so deep that she can't trust the doctor anymore. He lied to me. I know, but... Oh, I know you would have had a shed load of good reasons. I'm not saying you, I don't know, a bad person. It's just... Just, just what? Everything's changed. Lucy, I was wrong. I should have told you. Now I'll never be able to trust you again. Properly, like... But people are fallible. Not you, though. Funnily enough, when I was talking earlier on about the Brassy Northern Lasses... I actually found that quite a realistic reaction from people that I've known in the past, who, once you cross the line with them, that's it, there is no more, and there are no second chances. So I can see how it's tough, but again, it struck me as being a relatively realistic character trait, which I liked. Overall, though, I love this one. This is one I will return to again and again, and uh, enjoy the performances, enjoy the tone. It's very nicely plotted. I enjoyed the characters, I enjoyed the structure. It is hard to recommend it as a Christmas treat because of the ending, but overall, a very nice story. Right, so from Death in Blackpool leads us nicely on to The Next Doctor. And Tom, I believe you've watched that and you've got something to say about it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've got to say, I really liked the next Doctor. It was pe- the timing of it was perfect. By this, but, uh, when this is first screened, we know David Tennant is going to leave, uh, and so calling the story the next Doctor and having Neil Morrissey um, st- uh, standing saying, "Oh well, I am actually going to, be, I'm, I'm going to be a Doctor," and it kind of gives itself away after about two minutes of thinking about it, what's going to happen there. Um, that it it, it 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 was really perfectly pitched. I think having learned from the previous year's um, specials, there was snow. There was a very strong th- uh, Christmassy theme going on, even down to the um, uh, the tiny Tim character uh, of uh, of Jackson's son. But it was great. But it was great. I, I loved it. it the the pantomime elements were really good. Um, Vela Shabala as uh, uh, as Rosita was fa- was fabulous. I loved the uh, the TARDIS. Was it te- tethered aerial reconnaissance delivered <laughs> in style? That's Absolutely gorgeous, um, and of course, we, how can we not mention that wonderful Christmas present to all Doctor Who fans with the timestamp, with the data stamp, uh, as it's clicked mm. open, and there they are, all of these wonderful, amazing actors on Christmas Day, where they should be in the middle of Christmas Day. Who, who could have? Th- I mean, who would have thought? Forty plus years later, here are these one, here are these wonderful characters, these wonderful actors, show, uh, being this great character, slap bang in the middle of Christmas. It, 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 it was like Christmas, like Christmas come true. It's fantastic, really, really great. Um, not mad keen on the Cyber King. We've had that discussion before. Um, the the bit where my where, where I sort of where I wanted to just bury my head in my hands was the the workhouse scene with all the little kiddies, um, because that was obvious. It, that was obviously really probably not written for me, uh, but it, it worked well in a sort of um, Rat King evil uh, Christmas. Uh, ne'er do well. Here is the villain. Here's here's how evil he is. Styly, um, but aside from that, it was great. I mean, I, I'm glad that we didn't get um, a fourth wall breaking moment. Although, as Jackson asks asks the Doctor to stay uh, for Christmas, it's nice to see the man giving in and going. Oh, do you know, I think I will. So, it's, so, so to me, it's a great Christmas special. Um, not overly sentimental. Um, and a good, good, good performances all round. I know the cyber shades are a bit weird, um, but no, it, it's great. But again, lovely bits of fast there as the uh, as the Doctor and Jackson are being dragged along um, the fact uh, uh, the uh, the factory floor there by the cyber shade. Um, but yeah, just just good all round. It's, it's exactly what it should have been. I think the next Doctor has two words to thank for it for its awesomeness. David Morrissey, he is absolutely awesome and. I know what you said at the beginning there, Tom, about not much thought being put into the whole next Doctor thing, but I think that's belying the months of intense scrutiny in the fan community about what this story was going to be. As soon as Russell T Davies announced we were going to be getting the next Doctor, I think that set the internet on fire. It was one of those things that people were thinking, what is this story going to be about? And the teaser trailer which was released um, not soon after the announcement, certainly didn't give us um, any confirmation about what was going on. We were still wondering, was this going to be the next Doctor? Are we seeing a future incarnation of the Doctor? What's going on with this story? Um, I I mean, we've said it before on the show, I think RTD certainly tapped into what um, John Nathan Turner used to do, that publicity or pre-publicity for the uh, story whatever it might be is is in whatever form 
is a fantastic thing. And having fans talking about what this next Doctor concept might be was, was fantastic ammunition for the story. Well, the interesting thing you've got there is that uh, Russell T. Davis knew how to play with a fan in the way that only a fan can. So he knew, he, he'd been a member of fandom for years. He knew what to say. He knew what to do. He knows how to poke the fan community with a stick. And to be honest with you, once I realised that's what he was doing the whole time, I could sit back and enjoy it. You know, it wasn't meant to be um, derisive. It wasn't meant to be pejorative. It wasn't meant to be difficult. He was just trying to stir things up, and it worked really, really well. Um, I'll be honest. My, my my initial reaction was to think, okay, it, it took me a couple, it took me a short while, but then I thought, hang on, this is more likely to be something like uh, the One Doctor. I don't know if you got if if you've all heard um, that story, uh, which is a one. Wonderful story from Big Finish. Um, listeners, if you've not heard it um, and you're still with us, um, the, uh, the One Doctor yeah. from Big Finish, it's great. You know, this is the, probably the best time of year to listen to that because it's a great pantomime and it features a brilliant performance from Bonnie Langford as Mel as well. Um, really showing what, if, just showing what that character could have been if it had been written properly for TV. Um, but yeah, I honestly thought it was going to be a, um, uh, a, a, going to be that there was a, another Doctor who was just evil um, and a bit out of his depth. But no, it, it, I, thought, I thought it was a great telling of the story. It's interesting you mentioned the one Doctor, Tom, because that's precisely what I talked about Clayton Hickman mm. uh, about when I interviewed him a little while ago. And he was still sore. Uh, it was a good number of years after he wrote The One Doctor with Gareth Roberts. But he was still sore that Russell T. Davis, to this day, uh, has never acknowledged the fact that he basically nicked the first five minutes of it. I mean, fundamentally, the five-minute preview that went out on Children on Need uh, made all us fans think, great, they're doing The One Doctor. It also made the authors of The One Doctor think he's doing The One Doctor. They just didn't know. <laughs> At the risk of sounding like uh, Mr. Grumpy Humbug, I didn't really do it for me. And on the face of it, it's got it's got it's got everything that I could possibly want. It's got the Cybermen that ticks a box. It's got, as I said, snow on the ground, um, so it's Christmassy. It's got a bit of mystery, so potential good story. It's got it's got Muppets. Well, the Cyber Shades were a bit Muppety, weren't they? So it ticks all my boxes. I, in theory, I've got everything I asked for for Christmas, but. I don't know. It, it didn't do it for me. I felt shortchanged by the um, the whole next Doctor thing. I I knew that it wouldn't be the next Doctor. That, that it was a kind of JNT gimmicky um, way of of drumming up uh, interest in the in the show, in a similar way to um, the scrapping of the TARDIS or the police box shape, you know, for the start of 60s season. Uh, and then that, sort of, that obviously wasn't the case. It was just it got a few um, column inches in the in the in the paper. Um, first, I think from um, I mean I do sound I sound like I'm down on 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 all of RTD's era, and I'm not. And it's mainly the Christmas specials that never really never really worked for me. Uh, it suffers from the the bright July sunshine effect, you know, in the, the, right from the start, the scene in the square where it, it's obviously the middle of summer. Uh, you could have one of those Honolulu things that he had in the end of time on. I like the aesthetic look of the um, of the Cybermen in the snow. Uh, the Cyber King made me fall off my seat. <laughs> I, I nearly laughed myself silly. It reminded me of a uh, of scene in Aliens where they, they find the Queen Alien thunking out lots of little uh, alien eggs. The next Doctor was... I'd asked for a scale electrics and uh, what I actually got was a train set. Well, that probably doesn't bode well for our next <laughs> um, Christmas-related oh, Doctor God, Who fear. The End of Time oh, Part dear. 1. Don't make me, what don't make me. What will think of this one? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> 
we won't make you. I had to watch this one. <laughs> but I, I, I somehow think that Lisa and I will agree on this. Um, I, I've never liked this at all. Um, just, just to add a slightly different dynamic to rather than me just going off on one, I, I saw this in public. I saw this in the London pub uh, with a whole load of other Doctor Who fans as well. It was the one-ton pub good couple of years ago. Um, I got there in the afternoons um, and I think it was BBC Three was showing all of the previous Christmas specials to get everybody in a festive mood, which by the sound of things would have done nothing other than depress Leeson um, prior to the screening <laughs> the brand new Christmas special. And I, it was good. It was good in as much as there was lots of beer. There were lots of people who I knew and we were able to have lots of Doctor Who related conversations. But the episode itself disappointed, I would say, over half the number of people who are watching it. And there were lots mm. of very fed up people at the end. I, I got thoroughly fed up with it. I, th I thought it was one of the worst pieces of Doctor Who that I'd, I'd seen. I thought <laughs> Russell T Davis has lost it completely. There is no context here whatsoever. There was nothing to do with Christmas in any way, shape or form, really. Um, the master was a different master, really, mm -hmm. to the one that we saw in uh, Last of the Time Lords. And I know that he'd had the slight inconvenience of being killed beforehand, uh, so he wasn't necessarily the same man. But even so, it, it, it was a little bit more horrific. And I, I liked the the shades of skeletal um, images that we got when John Sim moved around. But he was basically a crazed, mad individual to start with, and, and, and dying didn't do anything for the character, frankly. <laughs> I, I hated the way they brought back the Time Lords after making five years. They've made an entire era of Doctor Who based on the fact that the Time Lords were never going to be seen again. It was uh, They were time-locked, I think. Uh, another brilliant piece of dialogue they introduced in Voyager the Dams. And yet we still see James Bond, although slightly greyer, coming out being referred to as Rassilon. And at the end of the story, oh, they were inconvenient, so he put them away again. As far as I'm concerned, this was a very, very bad story, full stop. It was an appalling Christmas special, uh, only to be matched, I think, uh, by the end of time part two. The, I will say one thing positive about it, and again, because Russell T. Davies knew he was good at writing character moments, and the scenes between the Doctor and Wilf are some of the best throughout the whole of the Tenth Doctor era, as far as I'm concerned. They're captivating, they're enthralling, Unfortunately, in this story, they're almost totally superfluous to the plot. And uh, I, I did enjoy them, but it was a case of Russell T. Davis going, I know I'm good at character. I'm going to shove in five minutes here. The remainder of the story could go to hell, oh as it goodness. did. Well, I'm, I'm having a really hard time understanding... Nail your colours to the mast. Um, <laughs> I'll try and be clear, very clear like. at all. Is, is this the... <laughs> Is this the episode where we have the magic incantation scene at the beginning? It is. It's Harry Potter. Oh, yeah. it's Harry Potter, and you know the you know the master being brought back from the dead. Mm. It is. Some, you know Harry Potter incantations. My goodness. Well, you think about what Tom always says about the sonic screwdriver being a magic wand. Never has it been so in place as a magic wand in this story. It was. Uh, it was purely magical. I take it that's not quite the magic you were looking for, Lisa, when you said you want a bit of magic in your Christmas specials. This. This for me had no sparkle just had rust and it was um it was an indicator <laughs> of someone who'd run out of ideas run out of ideas and... if i can jump in here <sighs> if only so we can get all the grumpiness over with uh, at the beginning 
so we can have the positivity <laughs> towards the end. Uh, I agree with almost everything you said. Uh, I had a similar uh, experience. I, all the other Christmas specials I used to I used to save, so I'd have my family Christmas wherever I was, uh, and people would say they know I'm a Doctor Who fan. I'm out of the closet and proud. And they said, "You want to, well, you can watch the we can sit down and watch the the Christmas special if you like." And I, I'd always go, "No, no, it's fine. I'm taping it, and I'd rather watch it on my own. People will talk, and I'll only get angry." Uh, anyway, on this particular, because it was such a big, uh, a big thing, on this particular year, uh, I, I made a big thing about, because people were around my house, so I made a big thing about, well, we have to sit and watch the Christmas special later on, and I want no one to any talk, we're going to sit down and enjoy it, all of you people, whoever you are, we're, we're going to sit and watch it, and about 20 minutes in, I was so embarrassed that I'd made such a fuss <laughs> about sitting down and watching this, I, I wanted to take it <laughs> off and put Pyramids of Mars on, and just to, just to, you know, to reset the balance, I, I was, oh. Did you have any kids sit there with you, Lisa? No, no, only myself. All adults? <laughs> yeah, all adults. Uh, so there was, there was no justifiable <laughs> reason, really. Uh, and I'd made such a big thing. I, um, my Daleks were out on display. Um, nobody else was really a, a Doctor Who fan. They hadn't seen any of the new series. So I, I ruined the possibility of them ever <laughs> ever taking it up as, a, as an obsession by introducing them to The End of Time Part 1. No, it had no, no redeeming features. I, I thought it shook my, it shook my faith in, in Doctor Who. I, I, it was, I was so ready for a change of, uh, of production team, of Doctor, of feel by, by the end of that, that uh, when Moffat took over, it was, it was a dream. He, was, he restored my faith. He lit my candle. Occasionally, when I look at the Prime Minister and I see them on the day they're elected, they seem bright, they seem so happy, so confident um, they've been vindicated. Uh, and they have dark, and they, ha- and they have strong dark hair and rugged good looks, mostly. Um, and then about three months later, their hair's gone grey and they look haggard because they've just been told exactly what it is that they have to do and exactly what they've got to work with. I reckon that it's much the same being a Doctor Who producer. You go into it and think, great, I'm a, I'm, I am now the producer of Doctor Who. I am the showrunner of Doctor Who. And then fandom starts. And then three months later, it's like, oh my God, what have I got myself into? Because on paper... Fans have been moaning, saying, we want darker Doctor Who. We want darker Doctor Who. We want something that's a bit frightening. We want something with a bit of depth to it. All right, then, here's the end of time, part one. We don't like this. It's like, do you know what? Forget it. So you need then to have good. Some... It still has to it be was good. good. It could be dark, it was but it good. wasn't good. It didn't make sense in any way, shape, or form. It was fine. Do you know what? It was exactly... Okay, so fine. There were the Time Lords, and there was Timothy Dalton, and there was the Master, and there was the Doctor scoring up for the biggest fight in Time Lord history. It was... Fa- well, okay. So... I'm sorry you didn't like it. I was confused by it when I first saw it. I'll be honest. Um, I sat. Um, I'm not the only Doctor Who fan in, in my little family. Getting my little family unit. So um, I sat there with um, uh, an eight-year-old uh, and a couple of other doctor, fully grown Doctor Who fans and people who like like being entertained. They wanted to watch it, and we we sat there. And we and we could see what the story was, but it was confusing. And I had to ask um, the eight-year-old, "Listen, what, what did you think of it?" And he said, "I liked it." I, 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 he said he. he um, which, which is great because that's who it's really for. And it, it's, as, I, as I sat there confused, I thought, hang on a minute. Now, did you enjoy that? Yes. What did you like about it? And he, he liked the master. He liked the fight. He liked the fighting. Uh, he got it. And after a couple of, uh, after a few days of thinking about it, I got it. And watching it again, it's like, okay, fine. I definitely get it. Um, I'm not sure if it's the best way for a doctor to go out. If I'm honest, and I'm not sure it's the best that Christmas Day was the best time to broadcast it, but 
it's it is what Doctor Who fans had been asking for. Oh, we don't want the light stuff. We don't want the comedy. We don't. We, we want dark. We want spooky. We want frightening. We want depth. Okay, there it is. We don't like this. It's like right. Okay, that's it. You know. Um, so 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 it was great to to see that you can't you know you can't you, you can't please fandom. You really can't. You, you can't you can't please some parts of it. I would say. Well, no, I, I think that's a separate issue, frankly. I, I think you, you, you're right. It'll never please anybody all the time. What we're interested in is whether or not this is a good story, and not necessarily taking fandom's word for it, but taking your own mm. word for it. And I think my, my first impressions to this is, my God, it's awful. There's no question of that. I watched it again, and my current impression is, yes, it does make sense, just about. There is a narrative story there being told um that does that does make sense but it's boring it's unengaging it doesn't make sense to anyone who hasn't seen all of the tenth doctor's era and even if you have there are still some questions you've got to ask i mean there is so much rtd junk dialogue in this white point star the banging um the banging in the master's head suddenly just just put there you know it's it, it, it's poor writing, in my view. It's, it, no, it's absolutely fantastic. Russell T. Davis said this... What part is fantastic? All of it. All of it. Russell T. Davis said, I'm <laughs> making some fundamental... Specifically. Okay, fine. So, Russell T. Davis said, I'm going to take uh, elements of Doctor Who that have been unexplained, and I'm going, and I'm going to reset things. I, I'm actually going to change the canon. And he's right. Changing the canon to, so that suddenly that whole... That double, that double heartbeat... Uh, is being being a time uh, sorry that double beat being a time lord's heartbeat. Well, we've been hearing that since 19, since nineteen sixty three. Explaining why it is that the master's mental. Explain just having Rasslon cast as a, as a supervillain. Yeah, but linking linking that linking that to suddenly allowing the time lords to come out of the time lock of the time war in a way that they've never been able to do before because of about a five minute exchange at the beginning of the episode it, it's basically saying I can do anything because it's a sci-fi show so I'm just going to write this little bit of nonsense and get on with the main story and for me you know he's done it so much better in other stories and he's written coherent sensible credible plot lines it's just a shame for me that he saved his worst ideas for the very end of Tenant's Run this is clearly subjective I don't agree with a word of what you're saying here that's fine <laughs> that's fine you know that's the whole point I, I, I think it would be wrong to say that yes we have a uniform attitude on everything in fact to be honest with you as listeners will know we have a uniform attitude Correct. about very little yeah, yeah, yeah. very little and that's that's absolutely fine but but for me this as I said this is, um, this is probably the worst example of Doctor Who um, that has hit our screen since we've since it came back in two thousand and five. But on the on the plus side, I mean, it, it it is Doctor Who and and it evolves and it changes, and by that very nature, you know, sometimes it's not going to speak to you in ways that other eras will. But let's 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 move on. Let's move on, and it's it's not possible that we can have such negative feelings towards any other story, surely. And uh, and Trevor, you're about to shine the light of positivity into oh, this yeah, podcast, man, aren't yeah. you? Yeah, well, I, actually, I've got the easiest really, of the Christmas specials um, on my roster. Uh, the Christmas Carol, which is the latest Christmas special, apart from the one you'll be seeing in a very few short days. Stephen Moffat really knows how to do a Christmas special. I'll tell you that right up front. Now, there's positives and negatives to that particular statement because he takes stuff from directly from, I suppose, classical Christmas type stories and we have a Christmas carol which we uh, enjoyed just this last Christmas. Now whether you like it or not Stephen Moffat's always going to I suppose borrow stuff from I suppose classical or, or modern literature 
for his uh, Christmas stories. We've seen that with Christmas Carol, and we're going to be seeing that very soon with uh, the uh, what the uh, Doctor, the wife, the witch, and the wardrobe, and the and and the kitchen sink or whatever it's called. It was fantastic to see this story because it, it, I think it was really the first Christmas special we've ever seen that really takes the concept of let's deliver something as a Christmas story and uh, just throw it up there as a story that is very much part of the Christmas season. I found that one, see, I've, I found uh, A Christmas Carol a bit confusing. What's the, what is it with the flying, fu- with the flying fish? It's the, it's the atmosphere. Uh, they're, they're able to move in the, um, the heavy kind of atmosphere created by Kazran's machine and uh, therefore they fly in the clouds and uh, that that was something we talked about I think on Boxing Day last year because I think Trev was in a, a real caravan for, yeah, once, he was, um, <laughs> for Christmas and um, I, I, I seem to remember saying I know I shouldn't like the fish I really know I shouldn't like them but I do and I, I still find them incredibly magical that's the magical that I expect and I, is, I'm assuming Leeson is the magic that you were talking about a, a little earlier absolutely yeah it's the it's the uh... It's the icing sugar dusting on the on the mince pie. It's it's magical. It's fantastical, and uh, the fish in the sky uh, is is a wonderful idea. Uh, and also, it's Kazran's father or Kazran's family who have the machine that uh, allows them to keep the big sharks back, which has given them his power. Right. So that so, so the flying so the whole thing is that the flying fish have arrived in Kazran's. Family. Okay, fine. All right. Well, no, I think they, I think they've always been there, and they were a threat. And he managed. Uh, his father managed to create the machine that would control the cloud belt, which would keep the fish out, the big fish out. Right. So that he was protecting the people. And that's what gave him his power. Oh, okay, that's quite right. As I understood yeah, it. That's cool. That's fine. That, that explains everything. I don't. I don't know why I hadn't got why, why I hadn't got that, but I hadn't. Thank you. See, I, I love I, I love the flying sharks. I love that well, and the and the fish in general. And it's, as, as the doctor says, when he sees the first few swimming around the uh, the lamp, he just goes flying fish. Oh, I love new planets. And it kind of sums up you know the reason the reason why why he travels. He's finally stumbled upon something that that he's never seen before. Yeah, um, and that's why he does it. That's why. He... I mean, it's difficult to get away from first impressions. Really, I mean, we we all watch stuff and we get that initial thought of what we thought of it at at the time and when I watched the Christmas special in that dingy caravan on a very flickery screen I watched these sharks flying through the air and thought okay this is jumping the shark this this seems to be Doctor Who doing something just a little bit weird just 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 a little bit strange and having sharks there seemed to reinforce the whole idea that maybe we've gone just a little bit too far with their whimsical aspects of Doctor Who? For me, no, it worked perfectly. And uh, it, it had all of the right ingredients mixed together and baked at precisely the right temperature. And it was served up in a fantastic looking dish. It was just great. For me, the first time I watched it, I remember getting shades or getting memories or flashbacks to some McCoy stories, uh, certainly the later ones. It was almost quite industrial. And, and, and certainly it fitted in perfectly with the TV movie. If, um, if there needed to have been a scene that showcased the Eighth Doctor's steampunky TARDIS, then this story would have done it absolutely perfectly. And I, I just loved it. It just, from the goggles the little kid was wearing at the beginning that looked like something out of World War I, to the flying sharks, to the whole alienness of it, all tied up in a great big Charles Dickens pastiche. It was 
it must have been something that Moffat had been thinking about for a very, very long time. And as far as I'm concerned, he nailed it. And if I was RTD watching that, I'd have been thinking, and I churned out the end of time. Well, I I agree with you there, James, definitely. I think Moffat does a Christmas special a lot better than RTD ever did, even at his best. And it's fantastic that he does borrow these elements from... I suppose, classical Christmas stories like A Christmas Carol. Well, it's interesting because I was going to ask, what, what do we think about borrowing ideas? and sort of, Do you think it's repackaging them for a, an audience that perhaps won't have uh, heard of them? Or is it, is it plagiarism? Is, I mean, is it laziness? I, I, don't, I, mean, I think what you're saying, repackaging them, does sort of reek of laziness. Mm. I'm very annoyed that they do that for that reason, and, and I would hope they wouldn't. And I'm really looking forward to watching um, the Christmas special this year and seeing what they do, because I hope they don't repeat that. I'm not particularly keen on oh, I think they will. revisiting the Narnia legend in a Doctor Who format. I, I think it's a fine line between a homage and a rip-off. Mm. Um, if they do it really well, it's a homage. And I think if you look at something like Planet of the Dead, there is not one single original idea there at all. It's all drawn from Hollywood. Um, I, I remember reviewing it when we were on the WhoCast uh, together, Trev, and my entire review consisted of headings of mm. other films that mm. he borrowed from. Um, and that, for me, was an utter out-and-out rip-off, rip despite the fact I quite enjoyed it, it has to be said. Whereas I think something like A Christmas Carol is a homage. It's It's not pretending to create something new. It's deliberately building on something that is already familiar to many many people who are going to be watching the show and I have a feeling that will be precisely what will happen in a week or so as well and for me it goes back to what we were saying a little bit earlier so long as the story is good so long as you can sit down and enjoy it I don't care what they borrow mm. from so long as it's not completely unoriginal and so long as it's done really really well Right, okay, so having discussed um, the last screened Christmas special, uh, we can now take a, take a listen to Ian and Michelle reviewing Relative Dimensions, which was the big finish Christmas special from last year. Hi, this is Ian and Michelle again, and this time we're looking at another Paul McGann Christmas audio, Relative Dimensions. The Doctor decides that he wants to have a traditional Christmas with his friends and his family in the TARDIS, but who or what is the spectre at their Yuletide feast? I am well aware of the danger, you know, that fish is destabilising the TARDIS's integrity. The TARDIS? How? All that leaping about in space and time. And if that's the future, if that's my future, then I'll have to face it one day. But Lucy, nothing, nothing will ruin my family's Christmas. Well, this is really a domestic drama. This is the Doctor trying to have the family Christmas that he wasn't able to have the year before with Lucy and her family. And in fact, in this story, he even goes so far as to invite his granddaughter Susan and his great-grandson Alex, who we last saw in the Big Finish story, An Earthly Child. I kind of felt like I was eavesdropping on the Doctor's private family life, which is something we rarely get a chance to do. Uh, and in that sense, I really enjoyed joining the Doctor for Christmas dinner, as it were. The tone of this one is much lighter than it was in the Blackpool one. I found it to be a fun romp. It was indeed. Um, picking up on 
what I said last time about Lucy describing what a traditional British Christmas would be like, and tradition in terms of what really happens rather than what you perhaps see on TV, this actually demonstrated it. The family all coming together, the stress that causes, the, the grumpy teenager who didn't want to go, the mother in the kitchen stressing over the food. Again, these were all very, very realistic themes of what real family Christmases alike and I thought it was a really nice way of taking things. Well haven't you noticed ever since the fish appeared my reactions and emotions have been all over the place it's like a sort of panic pressing in crushing me. It's very unnerving I don't trust my judgments anymore. No, I don't think that's the fish. Well, what else could it be? It's Christmas granddad. Christmas? Yeah everyone gets like that. But it's a holiday. It's the stress. You should see mum freak if Christmas dinner isn't perfect. Yeah perfect everything has to be perfect. Of course. Christmas, Alex. That explains everything. Thank you. Now I understand. God, no wonder people take two weeks off. Although it did get a touch laboured here and there that they kept dropping into what was obviously these Christmas observations, I, I enjoyed it. It was very nice. It, was, it put me in a good Christmas mood and made me think about the, the, the fun that's to come. I also enjoy that it's set almost entirely in the TARDIS, and we fans tend to lament that we don't see enough of the interior of the TARDIS on the TV show. So this was kind of fun. We got to see places like the galley, and uh, more poignantly, the TARDIS holding ring, where the Doctor has carefully saved rooms of all his former companions, and I thought that was kind of a nice touch, too, for Christmas. Yes, it was um, very nice to explore the inside of the TARDIS, but without going into some of the, the wilder excesses that occasionally happen when people go into the TARDIS. For example, the Hornet's Nest uh, audio went completely mad with that, which I didn't really enjoy at the time. This audio also is full of little Christmas gifts for longtime fans of the classic series. Lots of little references dropped in back to everything from Aladdin's cloak from Scarrow uh, to an Aztec necklace. And of course, the fish itself, the thing that interrupts the Doctor's family dinner, is a lovely reference back to a throwaway line from The Edge of Destruction, which was the third Doctor Who story ever. Uh, where Susan made a reference to the planet Quinnus in the fourth universe where we nearly lost the TARDIS. And that reference ties into the place where this fish originated that causes them so much trouble here at this Christmas and is more fully explored by Mark Platt, who wrote this episode uh, in a companion chronicle he wrote later, which is called Quinnus, and I recommend because of its vivid description of that planet. I did think it was rather amusing that we had another Christmas special with a giant flying fish that was trying to eat people. I had not made that connection. That is funny. And, of course, they had to have been developed independently, I would expect. Good point. It was a good old-fashioned Who story with a direct threat that's affecting the Doctor and the immediate people around him, but it's not some universe-spanning Armageddon. And the way it was built up and the way they played into it and resolved it, I thought was very nicely put together. And it was a really, really enjoyable story from start to finish. Yes, and ultimately, you know, you talked about the previous year's Christmas special being kind of a downer. This redeems that. They have their adventure, they have their challenges, but in the end they have a family Christmas. I think this is a good point for us to wish all the Doctor Who podcast listeners a Merry Christmas this year, and especially uh, a very Merry Christmas to the members of the Doctor Who podcast forum, who are in some ways like an extended family. We always have fun discussing our favourite show on the forums, and we'll definitely be doing so with the upcoming Christmas special. So, happy Christmas from us, and hope to speak to you soon. Happy Christmas, Doctor. And happy Christmas to everyone else, too. If anyone's listening... 
Thank you, Ian and Michelle, for that. Thank you, guys. Thank you very much for that. Uh, always awesome to hear from you. And that pretty much wraps up our thoughts and our ramblings, as it were, on uh, Doctor Who and Christmas. I hope you've enjoyed it. And uh, thank you, Leeson, for joining us for this uh, episode. It's been great to have you on board. It's been an absolute pleasure. I hope that I can come back uh, another time when I can talk about something in a more positive fashion. Because <laughs> I've come across as a bit of a grumble bump. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Bye. That was the Doctor Who Podcast, which you can find at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. If you have any feedback, please send it into feedback at thedoctorwhopodcast.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and via the Doctor Who Podcast forums. Thank you for listening. Take care.